Female artists do not get the same level of support. The female artists that I know of have reinvented themselves 20 times more than the male artists. There's a poor representation of all different types of women in music. Seek out strong women to align yourself with. We have to accept that there is a certain level of social responsibility that we do have for each other. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner the music industry can change. Welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women in the music industry who have taken control of their music and control of their careers. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and my guest in this episode is a born leader, CEO and visionary. I was thrilled to chat to Claire Spencer. Born and raised in London, Claire has had an unusual journey to arts leadership. She graduated from Cambridge with a master's in theology and also became a qualified accountant working for firms and telecommunications groups before immigrating to Australia. She then joined the team at Sydney Opera House, moving her way up to the CEO role. In 2014, Claire relocated to Melbourne, becoming CEO of Arts Centre Melbourne. She has since taken the organisation through a major restructure and has spearheaded projects including the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, the Australian Music Vault and the establishment of the Arts Wellbeing Collective, a pioneering program for mental health. Claire is a member of Chief Executive Women and also an executive of the Pinnacle Foundation. In January 2020, she was awarded an Order of Australia for services to the community and to the performing arts industry. Via our digital podcast studio during lockdown, we spoke about mental health for artists, inclusivity in the arts and COVID recovery. I also couldn't help but ask her about Kylie Minogue, one of the Art Centre's patrons and one of my personal heroes. So here it is. This is my chat with the wonderful Claire Spencer. Claire Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. How are you holding up through social isolation? Oh, look. Hi, Chelsea. First, first of all, thanks for thanks for inviting me. This is really terrific. Um, look, I, I won't lie. It's It's been pretty tough seven months. We've been closed now. Yeah, it's seven months. I think it might even be seven months today, actually. Middle of March, we closed. And, um, you know, I think no, no one really expected for us to be shut this long you know when we when we first announced we were closing it was like well let's close for a month because we were just like well we don't know how long this is going to go on for we should be right for a month and you know looking back on that now it seems so naive doesn't it that you know here we are in month seven and still no no solid end in sight so look we're we're okay we're going okay it's um We've taken very much a people-led approach during this period with the Arts Centre Melbourne team. It's been tough for them. They've all been, um, you know, working from home since that since that time. And we've tried to do as much as we can around well-being and keeping people connected and, you know, regular communication. At one point there, we were communicating pretty much every day, sometimes twice a day. But I think just keeping people informed and being honest and transparent about what was going on was really, um, was really, really important. But, um, yeah, I, I think, honestly, it's been very up and down. You know, you have, I think like all of us, you have days when 
you feel really optimistic and and excited and then other days where you just sort of want to sit under the desk and rock <laughs> slowly until it until it's all gone away and and home lives are complex as well you know it's um and you have all these fascinating insights into people's lives outside work and uh, I've got three three children and um you know they were all schooling from home for quite well the last 10 weeks they just went back on Monday actually and uh you know so you'd you'd be in the middle of something and then suddenly a kid would come in with some problem that needs solving and I think we've all just got very kind of relaxed about you know dogs and 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 people's kids and and partners and and what goes on but um yeah it's been a deeply human experience um and yeah lots of lots of up and down do you think it's changed in terms of your leadership, you know, having that kind of more insight, you know, more flexibility in future or working from home and, you know, do you think it'll change management in future? I, I think it will. I think absolutely it will. And, um, you know, in lots of in lots of different ways, I think I'm trying to think how best to articulate it. I think because particularly in the early days of um, the crisis, you know, that sort of mid-March to mid-April, it was so raw and we really didn't know what what was going on and, um, you know, there was a lot of disappointment. A lot of people were really frightened. Um, the, the separation of people from the place they love in in the context of the art center but also their purpose and their and their colleagues you know I think there was a there was a rawness in the emotion at that time and you know as I say to all of my team you know remember I'm just a person I'm going through this in exactly the same way you are and so there was a lot of vulnerability at that time and I think um you know, once you once you lead like that, you you almost can't go you can't go back. You can't unsee it, and I think that's actually not a bad thing. Um, you know, it's it's going to be a hard road out for for live entertainment. There's no doubt about that, and I'm sure there will be many, you know, many many difficult periods ahead of us as we try to to get through a recovery. But I think coming at it as a deeply human experience through the crisis but also through recovery I think it has changed me as a as a leader and I think that change will be will be permanent. It's such an amazing kind of experience to go through and there's just been so many different stages I think for everybody to experience in terms of grieving for the loss of what they imagined 2020 to be and the sadness and disconnection but also you know the stress on the personal lives it's just been you know, quite a wild ride for everybody. I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of the arts and and the arts centre, you know, what role do you think the arts can play or should play in the recovery of the COVID pandemic? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. It's such a timely question as we start to think about recovery. Um, Look, I, I think there's a critical role for the arts to play here. And I remind people, um, you know, who don't who don't work in the sector, so perhaps who aren't as immersed in it, that there has been such a dependency on arts and artists and creative output through this period. So thinking of, you know, all the books that people have read, all the Netflix they've watched, all the live streams they've watched, all the music they've listened to. 
Um, without those things, without art, this period would have been so much worse than it has been. And my hope is that through that, people will really reflect on what art means to them and what and the impact that it has on them. And I think that is a tremendously good thing. I think when you layer on top of that, though, what's going to happen in recovery, which um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to start soon for, for live performance anyway, is that there'll be a hopefully a sort of a joyous reminder of experiencing live performance together with an audience, with others. And I think that's one of the things that makes, um, you know, live performance such an incredible, um, such an incredible part of our lives is that you're not sitting in isolation as we have been um, experiencing this. You're actually you're there, you're in the moment, you're with the artists, you're with the audience who are around you and it's a collective, it's all, it's a community experience. And I think that sort of yearning for connection and community and, and experiencing something in the moment um, is very, I think that need is very acute. So I, I see... I see the arts as playing a really important role in in encouraging people back out of their homes. I think there can, there's a degree of nervousness in the community about coming out. It's you know we are hundred days in lockdown in Melbourne this weekend, so it's it's been a long time. So I think you know giving people really terrific experiences that they can come back to and and connect with is um, is going to be really important over the next few months. But I think if you take it to the next level, if you go a little bit deeper than that, just that immediate experience, there's all of the benefits that come from um, the arts, whether it's visual or performing arts, around storytelling, about understanding others, about empathy, um, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, discussing contemporary issues of the day as they maybe relate to you through a you know a piece of art or a performance there is a whole layer i think that happens around art that has really positive impacts on the community um, on people's own creativity and um you know the cohesion of society is what i feel you know very strongly that um the arts brings a lot of that and i think my hope is going into this next into this next period it will be welcomed that we talk about that and we don't just see the arts as entertainment we actually see them as a really important opportunity for us to engage deeply in the society that we live in and contemplate that and uh, actively you know contribute to to the debate and um you know and of course then there's all the all the other benefits that the arts bring around the economy and activation of the city and, and so on and so forth. But I'm hoping that it's that sort of intrinsic power of the arts that, that, that people are reminded of as we, as we come out of isolation. How do you think we can steer that conversation to make sure it happened? I was a little bit disturbed with some of the, the comments our federal government made around government support towards the arts and particularly the film industry, the conversation around quotas for Netflix and Australian content on TV and their response was, 
well, we don't care about content quotas for Netflix because that doesn't affect Australian jobs, which was entirely incorrect because the whole film industry was in shutdown. So people have been consuming content at these rapid levels and more than ever before, we're desperate for new content, but how do we ensure that the conversation is, this is important? Mm. Look, I I think there's a little bit of reflection um, going on at the moment. Certainly it's something I'm thinking a lot about is why does advocacy around the arts um, uh, not have the impact that we hope it, it, it would have? And I think, you know, there's something I, I've reflected on, you know, my sort of my own advocacy over the last few years. And, you know, it's we're all in a situation that we we seek a platform for ourselves. So you know, if, if you work for a company, your advocacy is around that company. If you work for a venue, your advocacy is around the venue because, you know, it's none of us are swimming in 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 money to deliver on our purpose. So it, it tends to, that need, to be honest, it tends to shape the conversations that you're having. And when you step back from that and think, well, where is the platform? Where is the industry platform for talking about the benefit of the of of the arts, whether it be visual arts, whether it be performing arts? Where is that? Where is that narrative that if you're a leader in 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 the arts industry, that's the narrative that you lead with about the benefit of this to the community at large and it's not and it's not just about entertainment it's it's about it's about jobs it's about economic impact but it's also about those um, social impacts that we talked about before and I don't think we've done that well um, so it's certainly something that we're we're thinking about in our narrative at the Arts Centre at the moment is well how do you what's our role I mean performing arts is is our space clearly but what's our role in advocacy for the whole sector not just for what happens in South Bank on in on South Bank in Melbourne so thinking a lot about that and also being um, a little bit shameless, I think, in talking about the in talking openly about the impact that the arts has to our audiences, to our donors, to our communities who may not yet be audiences, um, and drawing those connections between art that people do consume on a daily basis, music, literature, and so on and so forth, and 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 making it clear that these are these are all one of the same amazing glorious arts industry that we have here in Australia but if we're not careful we are going to lose that and so I think there is definitely a um, a duty of all arts leaders to advocate not just for their own organization but for the arts as a whole Um, and that's certainly um, something I've reflected on a lot over the last few months and and I'm trying to sort of shape into my own leadership practice and and conversations that I have. Um, But, yeah, I think uh, we need to be bolder, we need to be louder um, and a little bit less, um, you know, over, um, not overwhelmed, that's not the right word, but uh, a little bit less sort of in awe of sport and, you know, all of the, all of the um, action and, and understanding there is around that. Um, more people participate in cultural activities than they do in sport in the, in the country, but I don't think that's well under, I don't think that's really well understood at all. I wanted to ask you around the economic side of the pandemic, you know, moving forward, how do you think we can ensure this accessibility to the arts 
and maintain some sort of balance of affordability. But, you know, we need to make sure that our institutions survive and that our artists survive and are still remunerated for their work. Yeah, look, it's a really complex puzzle, this one. And I think, you know, there is an obvious answer that you could come up with and just say, well, you know, if you can only get 300 people in a 2000 seat venue, just charge them more. But that's, that is not in the spirit of the business that we're in. And so it's got to be much more sophisticated than that. Um, and so we're looking at, you know, all sorts of, um, all sorts of methods around how to do that well. And, and I think it will change a lot over time. So while um, indoor venues are, are seen as or are, at, you know, at a higher risk of um, COVID infection than outdoor, I believe it's your you're 20% less likely to um, catch COVID in an outdoor environment than you are in an indoor environment. And obviously that's really relevant, um, really relevant for us. So we're sort of thinking, well, if it's going to be, if we're going to be operating indoors, then we're likely to have restricted audiences which changes the economics of, of, of a show, obviously, and, and impacts, you know, how the creatives are paid and all of that. So we're thinking in the short term, well, let's look to the outdoors. Um, we're for, very fortunate that the wonderful Sydney Meyer Music Bowl in Melbourne is actually one of our venues. So at the moment, we're looking at that to say, well, maybe we could think differently about that venue over the summer um, coming in 2021 and shift some of those performances that would historically have been indoors into an outdoor environment, which you can have more people, so it shifts the, you know, it shifts the economics. So I think you've got to, you, you, you've got to think on your feet and not be, not be reverting only to the way that we used to do things. So how can we innovate? How can we change? How can we respond to the situation as it is right now, right in front of us? But then also, how do we take those innovations into the future? So I think what we'll see in the immediate term is we'll see, certainly from an art centre point of view, we'll see more activity outdoors. Um, we'll see... Um, We'll see streaming continue as a um, as an activity. So we we created a digital um, platform back in April. Um, once we were clear that COVID was going to last for more than a month, um, and you know we've been pumping out our, uh, pumping out content through that since then, and it's had a terrific reach. Um, so the reach is now up above twelve million with active active engagement, and now approaching two million. So it's you know there's definitely a demand for that kind of content, and it's and it's helped access in that it's all been free. Um, it's been funded by donors, very generous donors, and also by the um, Victorian government, which has been terrific. And so I think there's, you know, what that's demonstrated to us is that there's digital content. Digital content is really important for access. Um, and so we're anticipating that that will continue. What we've got to find for both of those examples I've given you, though, is um, how to make the numbers work. And I think particularly with the um, Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, uh, we will need government support this year to, to bring that to, to fruition. So we're talking to both City of Melbourne and the state government at, at the moment about that. But when you dive into the potential activity, um, the economic return on it is very strong. Um, 
so we're sort of positioning it as a as an investment and a, an activation for for the city, which will obviously drive a lot of economic activity. It will provide a lot of employment for artists and creative workers, and that will be a metric that we include in everything we do now. Well, how many jobs does this create? And you know, for a, just to give just by way of example, um, a three month season at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl would yield up about two thousand work opportunities. Um, so it's you know it's really significant. It's really significant, um, as well as the the benefits of um, you know bringing bringing people out of their homes and and giving them great content to engage with. So I think it's it's a matter of you know re- coming back to your question, it's being think really thinking on your feet and saying well what are the assets that I have? What are the what are the objectives that we want to achieve? So for us, our assets are a brilliant team and great venues. What are the objectives we want to achieve? We want to bring um, creatives back into 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 work, and we want to provide extraordinary experiences for um, Victorians who've been inside for a long time. So it's trying to shape up a proposition from those known themes, and then just being really um, tenacious and a little bit bloody minded to sort of bring these things to fruition. So yeah, there's a lot of quite a lot of hustling going on at the moment, Chelsea. <laughs> How do you think we'll see the pandemic reflected in performing arts over the next few years? Do you think there'll be a lot of works that speak to the experience or do you think we're all going to be peak isolation fatigue and don't want to hear about it? Such a good question. I think it will be a mix. I think, and I think it will, um, that there'll be a, a pattern in it. So I think once we get out of isolation, I think there'll, be a, a, a desire for some celebratory um, work, so lots of music and you know <laughs> dance. I think um, artists need time to process what's been happening. So I don't think we'll open on the you know the first day back. We'll have a piece of theatre about isolation. I don't think that will happen. But I think that it will come in time. And I think also there's been you know, a lot of reflection in, in this time in, in isolation about um, about other factors in our society. So loneliness is, um, is something that I think a lot of artists are really interested in. And, um, you know, looking, looking to the US and, and the UK at the moment and also to here in Australia, big questions around cultural equity and um, what that means to a to a society. So I think we can continue to expect to see some really solid work coming out around that with some in- really interesting social commentary and provocations for us to, to debate. So, yeah, I think... Um, you know, if we can, if we can give our artists hope that there there will be a return to, to live performance, and if we can support them in the creation of new work, I think we're in in for a treat over the next few years, as we always are in this country. I mean, creative talent is something that we are not short of at all. And speaking of our creative talent, I know there's been a lot of conversations um, recently around reviewing the live performance award rates for artists and around superannuation for artists, which in so many cases artists aren't paid. Um, It's a really complicated one to have a conversation around award rates for artists because we have a market value system and essentially your worth as an artist comes back to how many tickets you can sell. It's not a specific service like 
plumbing. Um, but how do you think we can ensure that artists are paid fairly for their craft? And how can we tackle this conversation around superannuation and, and fair treatment for artists? Mm, such a such a good question. And I think, you know, this period has really highlighted the economic fragility that many artists find themselves in and the, you know, the 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 true definition of, of gig economy. So I think there's definitely um, there's definitely an appetite to, to to take that on. And I think as you know, leaders in the in the in the sector, there are some important um, principles from which you refuse to be um, diverted. So always offer to pay your artists. Always never ask them to perform for free. And if anyone approaches you for a referral to an artist to perform for free, refuse to do it and tell them why you're refusing to do it. I think, um, you know, all too often we hear stories of, oh, well, you know, they, I've been asked to do this, but there's no budget. Well, if there's no budget, then don't approach an artist. You know, don't do the project unless you can afford to do it. Um, so I think, you you know, taking a strong stance on that. And some artists, you know, are terrifically um, generous. So we, um, you know, we've, we've had artists who offer to donate their fees back. Um, to We have a, a philanthropic fund called the First Call Fund, which artists will often donate fees back, or our Arts Wellbeing Collective, which we run for the mental health of live performance um, workers. That will often receive donations from artists. But the principle is your work is of value and you'll be paid for it. And we've extended that um, now as well to non-performance work. So we're running a series of um, thought leadership groups, for want of a better word at the moment, about the future of the sector. And, you know, going into that, we were like, we actually need to pay the artists to do this because... They're without work at the moment. They're without income. They are giving us their time. Their time is valuable. Therefore, we must pay for it. And the first, the first, um, the first round we did, we actually didn't realise it until the end. We were like, we really, we should have paid those artists. So now we're going back and sort of correcting that. But for future, it's that's now a, an organisational principle that we put in place. And I think there's a. There is a role of leaders in in that Um, and to do it vocally, to tell people you're doing it and to tell them why you're doing it because artists are often approached to work for nothing. And, um, you know, when you throw it back at people, well, would you work for nothing if someone asked you? It it does make them think. So I think um, it's speaking up about those kind of things. In terms of the the broader question around the economy of of live performance, it's it's so complex and, um, you know, one one of the things we're trying to wrestle with at the moment is with this summer season that we're planning we would what we want to be able to do if we get the funding um, is to be able to say to artists yes we are booking you for that time and the same for the production crew the same for the people who work you know the ushers everyone in that space to give them that assurance of work And if it gets cancelled, they still get paid. So we've got a lot of work to do to think about, well, how do we set up the financial structures in the background to support this? But I think there is a a growing awareness now um, with boards, with, um, 
you know organizations that this is a this is a an acute problem in this sector and it needs clever minds to resolve it um, and I think getting an acknowledgement of a problem is often the first step in starting to solve it. So I'd love to be able to come up with a really clever formula, Chelsea, and say this is what we should do. Um, we're not there yet. We've um, we've got to work through it to make sure that this industry is equitable and that it is sustainable for the creative workers who work in it. Um, otherwise, my concern is people will just throw their hands up and say, do you know what? This is just too hard, and they'll they'll leave the sector, and that would be the worst outcome for for all of us. Touching on well being, um, mental health for artists and arts workers, I think, has been such a long overdue conversation. Um, and I know that you've spoken quite a lot about mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about the arts well being initiative and how you think we can support artists? Yeah, look, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. It's a tough one to talk about. Um, The live performance sector is a difficult industry to work in and um, some terrific research that was done by Victoria University and Entertainment Assist back in 2015 really put data around what we all instinctively knew, which is that this is a hard industry. So we skew above the national averages for mental health indicators, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, um, you know, whether it be suicide ideation. It's, it's, a, it's a very sobering read. And back in 2016, when we were really digesting this data, we, um, we had cause to sort of stop and say, well, what are we doing as an employer? You know, we have a thousand people at the art centre, and then you know, obviously thousands of more artists cycle through, um, cycle through our facilities every year. And what we realised was that we we had good support in place for. Um, uh, reactive um, support. So we had, you know, an employee assistance program and all of that, and great provisions for leave. And but what we hadn't, um, what we didn't have in place, was anything that would actually help people not get to that point of crisis in the first place. So we sort of looked around. We said, well, we must find this. We'll we'll look around. We'll find a program that you know will support people who work in at the art centre and not getting to this point of crisis and. You know, we could, there was a lot of generic um, material in the market, but nothing that we felt really addressed um, some of the particular challenges that, that that we face. So, you know, you can't tell someone who works in theatre to, to have early nights and spend more time with their family if they're, you know, on a late call or if they're touring. It just, it just doesn't work. So we decided in a moment of... Um, extreme clarity well if it doesn't exist then we must create it and that's really where the arts wellbeing collective was born and and initially it started as something just for arts center melbourne but we looked at the initial sort of framework that, that was worked up and we did this we worked with psychologists right from the beginning you know we're humble arts administrators not 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 people who work in this space but we looked at the first framework and it was like you know what this is actually really good and is filling a big gap so we decided that we'd open it up to the rest of the um 
industry. So I sort of made a few calls and we thought in that first year we'd get maybe, you know, 10, 10, 15 other organisations joining us. We ended up with 150 um, organisations on the pilot and it's now over 100, it's over 350 organisations now. Um, so it, it, it tapped a need and has really gone um has gone from strength to strength. I mean, it's been interesting watching um, that what's happened during coronavirus and, you know, we were extremely concerned right from the beginning about the impact that this would have on um, creative workers' mental health and and we were right to be worried. The demand for support services has, has really gone through the roof. So the team um, at, at the Arts Centre who still support the Arts Wellbeing Collective, we still, it's still run in-house have just been pumping out resources, training mental health first aiders, trying to create communities, doing webinars, you know, really just owning owning the space. And, and one of the sad but I think really good things that, that's come about during or has become really a, a visible during this period is people are very comfortable talking about their mental health. And um, I don't think that would have happened you know, five years ago, and I, you know, I would hope that the Arts Wellbeing Collective has had a, has had a role to play in that. Um, but it's a good example, I think, of what an art centre should do, as well as putting on great performances. It should really think deeply about well, what is its role in the industry, um, and 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 how can it better support that industry in a way that um, is 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 generous and authentic and that's certainly what we've um what we've set out to try and achieve with the arts wellbeing collective and that's supported that program is now supported by um worksafe victoria through their work well program and also very um generous donors again who are who are passionately invested and supportive of of the performing arts and uh, we ran an emergency appeal at the end of last tax year actually and amazing it's allowed us to accelerate so many of the programs that we um we were hoping to deliver under the collective and they're now actually um out in market you know 18 months ahead of where when we thought we would be able to get them out so it's such a it's such an important conversation to have and um you know it's one that we are very committed to i would hope you know that in at some point in the future, we won't need an arts wellbeing collective. That you know the, the 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 problems with the industry will have will have resolved and systemic. You know what, what another part of what we do is we try to think deeply about well what are the systemic issues that cause these issues in the first place and and what can we do um, in terms of industry change to address address some of those things. So that's the the whole thing about payment of artists and creative workers really sits under under this umbrella as well because we. Know know that financial insecurity is a big driver or is one of the big drivers of um you know of mental health issues so it's a complex web that once you start digging into um there is a lot of work for us to do uh across the across the industry around the world actually so there's been a lot of interest in the arts wellbeing collective in the us we've got membership in the uk um and uh yeah it's really um no one else is working in this space and i think many more people need to work in this space it's so important i think it's just an incredible 
initiative and congratulations on the work achieved in in that area so far because it's so meaningful and so important. I really loved what you said about acknowledging where you sit as an organization within that broader industry because I feel like so often that that conversation doesn't happen and that a festival starts, you know, a festival, you know, is is developing a program that just sort of sits on top of an existing culture without really thinking about does has anybody asked for this festival does anybody need it what is our bigger duty beyond just putting on a string of shows um, and what's the responsibility to the artist because an art center or a venue it, it really is just you know bricks and mortar without the actual artists creating something inside of that space so really you know what's more important the artist or the the arts institution um Speaking of institutions, I know you formerly worked at Sydney Opera House, another incredible Australian institution. I mean, the Sydney Opera House and Art Centre Melbourne, they are physical representations that mean so much to so many different people. What, what do you think that relationship is between an art centre or a prestigious kind of venue like that to the city which it resides? Oh, look, it has to, it has to sit in its context um, and, you know, it's so interesting having worked in two of our biggest performing arts centres. They're so different. Um, and, and coming to Melbourne was, um, you know, really, really steep learning curve for me to getting, because you, you need to understand the city and the community that your art centre sits in, because that's who you're there to serve. You know, we're very conscious that we're, um, we're we are uh, part funded by um, by the uh, uh, the Victorian government. Sorry, I'm losing my words there. Um, and and that and with that comes a responsibility. And um, you know, so we're. I think you've got to you you've got to deep, be deeply present in your own community. And I think, uh, you know, we, we're all pretty close, us performing arts um, centres leaders around the country, and we all, we all have very different contexts and what works, you know, for Louise in Sydney isn't necessarily going to work here in Melbourne and vice versa. So you've got to really, um, you know, think deeply about the, the community that you sit in and the creative community that you sit in as well. So it's been um, a pretty joyous six years for me at ACM coming to, to learn about Melbourne and uh, we we sold up in New South Wales and we now count ourselves firmly as Melburnians, which, is, which has been wonderful. But I think you've got to... You've got to think about where your responsibilities lie. And with a performing arts centre, it's really complicated because you've got your resident companies, you've got those, you know, sort of big national companies that have those, um, you know, extraordinary artists who work within those and and very loyal and, um, and, and passionate supporters and audience members, and you've got to be able to serve them. But you've also got to be able to embrace the other end of the sector where you've got your small to medium companies working and independent artists. So it's a, and you know, you've got pretty much everything in between as well. So you've got to, you've got to view it as quite a sort of a complex patchwork quilt and, and make sure that your, 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 your team and your facilities are ready to um, embrace whatever kind of work, you know, is coming, is coming onto the stage, but also that your team is really attuned to the sector that we are in and that we support and that it isn't a one-size-fits-all. Um, they have to be somewhat um, 
chameleons to be able to respond to the needs of a particular company, a particular artist, or a particular um, audience segment that are coming in. So we spend a lot of time sort of working on on the the, the culture actually at, at Art Centre Melbourne and what are our values and how do they get expressed, whether it's through the programming we do ourselves or whether it's through, you know, supporting a major organisation when they come in. And, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting tapestry. I think until you've actually worked inside a performing arts centre, they're quite hard to understand. They're like, um, they're like small villages in terms of um, just the, you know, the huge variety of skills and, um, and resources that you have, you have to have on, on your team in order to be able to, to give your performers, whether they be a small company, whether they be a massive company, our job is to create a stage and an environment where they can perform at their best. And um, there's great joy in that. There's great joy in, in when it works well, but it is not without its complexities. And um, I think just consciously being aware of what is our role as an art centre and what um, what can we do that perhaps other venues can't given our scale and given our resources and how do we use that to um, best effect so it's, I love it. You can, you can probably hear in my voice, I, I just love the, the complexity of running art centres. They're, they're, they're joyous places, but they're complex mistresses to have in your life. <laughs> Throughout this podcast series, I'm talking to, you know, women that work in a range of different roles and being a senior leader in Australian arts, um, of course, I really wanted to chat to you about women in leadership it's so extraordinarily difficult for women um, to become CEOs in any industry across the world. You know, when you kind of break down those those statistics, I think the Australian stats show that women represent about 17% of CEOs currently across the country. What do you think needs to change culturally before we can see more women in the top roles? Yeah, look, it's um, it's still a it's still a real problem, and I'm. Uh, I'm part of an organisation called Chief Executive Women that does this extraordinary study every year that um, analyses those very stats that, that you've just come out with. And we still, we haven't got it right. We clearly haven't got it right yet. I think there's no silver bullet. I think there's no, um, this is one of those really, really complex problems that requires a very complex solution. But I think, you know, sort of when I when I reflect on it, I think more more women on board, so more women in decision making roles is is critical, because um, other women need to see it. They need to they need to see women in positions of leadership to know that they can do it. So you know the the CEO decisions are often made by boards. So let's look to the boards first, and and you know as, as shareholders or as um, you know, members of the community, we can we can exert pressure there. I think there are practical things, though. Um, you know, childcare is is a re- such a pressing issue to resolve, and affordability of childcare is a, is a huge issue. Um, and I think until we get that sorted, we're going to see. Um, women making a choice to leave the workforce um, because it's just too hard or it's just not economically viable for them to be in it. Um, I think as employers, we've all got an important role to play. So 
supporting women in their return to work, particularly after if they're if they're um, you know having children, I think is critical. Um, and and giving them the flexibility that they want and that they need, and and there should be no impediment to flex. There should be no impediment to flexibility if you're a senior leader at, at all. If there's a if there's an organisational commitment to make it work, it can work. And I've seen it. You know, I've seen it work. And I think shining light shining a light on those things when they do work is important as well so letting women in the organize in your organization know that flexibility is there it's available and it's a conversation often it's no more than a conversation to get those kind of things resolved um i've made some personal decisions in my own capacity as a leader um to try and um, encourage other other women. So I talk openly about my children. I talk openly about um, <laughs> how naughty they can be sometimes. But no, about that struggle. That that struggle is real. But that you can you can overcome it with careful um, you know with careful thinking and and a supportive employer. You absolutely can overcome it. So I I I talk about that a lot. Um, I've never, you know, hidden the fact that I I have children who I love very much, and um, and you know they're not grown up children. They're, these are little kids, so we're still in that sort of intensive parenting stage of life. Um, and I think the other thing that many senior women I know um, do really well, and which I've adopted as part of my practice, is mentoring. So mentor other women, mentor women who are coming up through the ranks do practical things like you know help them prepare for interview um give them advice on um return to work don't you don't be don't sort of sit in your you know in your in your tower and be remote actually get down and 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 help people at the grassroots and you know i've been really so blessed with some of the extraordinary women i've mentored over the last over the last few years in particular it's a it's a joy, you know, it's a joy when you see um, these women go on to sort of conquer things that perhaps they were a little bit um, fearful about about conquering. And um, sometimes I think also giving people a really good shove when when you think they're ready for something um, and, and encouraging them to, to do it and talking them out of this. Well, I, you know, there's one point in the position description that I, I don't meet, so I'm not going to apply. It's like, no apply um you know and i i was fortunate in in at key points in my career i had women who i respected very much giving me a good shove and saying no you're ready you don't realize but you're ready trust me and um you know i think i think that's so important to 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 name it and um and yeah just do what you can to help those who are coming up behind you and um yeah so I don't know. That's a long answer to a really complex question. And as I said, I don't think there's one there's one thing that's going to fix it. But there's lots of things that need to change in order for us to shift that percentage of of female CEOs. Yeah, I think you're right. I like the idea of a multi prong attack. I'm all about the multi prong. Um, but I do <laughs> think that there needs to be change within organisations, within government, but also culturally and socially. And you know, I just became. A uh, new mum, as I was telling you before, I've got a seven-month-old little guy, and already I've had comments from family members or even friends about, you know, oh well, 
returning to work, you know, well, that's not going to be fair on your baby. And I kind of think that's my decision to make. And part of being a parent is also financially providing. So, you know, and so many women, you know, the statistics are that so many women are ending up on the poverty line in, you know, when they hit retirement age, because they've had this dip out of the workforce. And if you have this huge dip out of the workforce, and then, you know, you return to work, you're behind, you might not be going for promotions. I mean, I know Cheryl, did you read Cheryl Sam, Sandberg's book, Lean In? Oh, Lean In, yeah, I loved it, yeah. It had a lot of criticism as well. You know, she's copped a lot of um, positive and negatives, you know, but one of her, the things that she talks about is women opting out, you know, before, you know, before they've even had kids, they're already making career decisions based on the future kid that doesn't exist yet. But I won't go for that job because the hours would be so, so intense, you know. So I think trying to build into organisations as leaders, flexibility is a huge help. I really love that you talk publicly about being a mum and a CEO, and I personally find that incredibly inspiring. Um, how how do you manage your kind of calendar and your priorities so that you still are you? Because you know your mum, CEO. I mean, these are two massive responsibilities. Is there any clear time? Does that exist? Look, do you know it's such a good question, and I, I you know, I've been thinking. <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about this one. There, there, I have a couple of secret weapons. So before I go into time um, distribution, I have, I am very, very fortunate in that I have an EA who is brilliant. Her name's Sophie Davis. I have to give her a call out. Um, Sophie uh, is deeply aware of my personal situation, so she knows the, you know, all the things I need to do. So she really helps me and tells me when I need to pull back. So she's very, we have a very robust conversation and um, she can sense when I'm starting to, to overcommit and getting stressed. So she pulls me back down, um, which is great. And I also have an amazing husband who is a very, very hands-on parent. So um, without those two, I, I really wouldn't be able to sort of make it work, to be honest. But um in in terms of your your question, yeah, it is hard. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. And um, one of the weird benefits of COVID actually is that I've I have rediscovered a bit of a bit of self time, which was um, had been lacking for quite a while. There, honestly, I was a bit um, you know strung out with with work stuff and and with the kids. So I've um, I've rediscovered exercise in a in a way that I haven't since my 20s actually so I haven't been this fit since I was in my 20s so I've been walking a lot I've been doing a lot of um weight training to try and resolve a long long-term back issue that I'd had and um I did a very radical thing back in June when the the virus and the lockdown was really starting to get on top of me and that I gave up drinking which um, is a very big is a very big deal, and um, yeah, I've sort of rediscovered the hours between five thirty and seven a.m., which were out of reach to me before. Um, so now I've um, you know I spend time in the morning reading, I meditate and exercise, and it's been a game changer. 
So, you know, my, my big challenge coming out of lockdown and going back into, into a live performance context soon, hopefully sooner rather than later, is how do I preserve that? You know, how do I get through my first opening night without the champagne and uh, still, still wake up at half past five the next morning? But um, so, uh, yeah, ask me again in six months how I'm going with that one, Chelsea. But it's, uh, I think, I think, um, you know, women are good at this. They can they can balance, they can juggle, and um, if you're determined to find to find time for yourself, I think you can. It's, but I think it's something that is easily missed and easily let go. Um, so certainly, one of my COVID learnings has been: don't let it go. Retain your sense of self. Um, you know, I've started writing again and things I've not done for years, you know, and it's a joy. I've started writing letters again, you know, which is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. But um, it, it does, it, it's not for the faint-hearted. I, I, would, um, I would be lying if I said it was easy, um, you know, and you, you do have days when it's, you, it's hard and you feel you've let your kids down and you feel you've let work down but they pass and um you know I think the important thing is to be able to have open conversations about it in the workplace um and my I'm I'm very fortunate I have a very very supportive board and a very supported uh supportive chair of that board and and we will talk about what's going on with the kids um, regularly because he recognises that's a it's a, that's a an intrinsic part of me and it's not an optional part of me. You know, I think the other thing just to to mention, given your own reflections, is it's a deeply personal thing. What women decide to do after they've had a child is deeply personal. And, you know, I've had friends who've decided to leave the workforce and they have never been happier. They love being a full-time mother. I adore my children, but I couldn't wait to get back to work. Um, So I think, you know, it's different courses for different horses, isn't it? We're not all the same. and, um, And listening is important because each person's situation is different. But I think as an employer, um, you have a responsibility to really try and accommodate people's desires and, and preferences. And in my experience, you know, if you do that, then they will be so loyal and so hardworking um, that it's, it's, a, it's a joy to watch it unfold. So, yeah, more of that. I wanted to talk to you about Me Too and the Me Too movement because you, the Me Too movement happened while you were at Arts Centre Melbourne. So you've, you've been in the performing arts in the same institution before and after Me Too. How do you think, do you think the arts has changed? Do you think Me Too's made an impact? I absolutely think it has. And, um, what, what it, it's interesting because Me Too was happening around the same time that we were starting the Arts Wellbeing Collective. And there was a lot of discussions around um, the impact of, um, uh, you know, unsafe work environments and sexual harassment on mental health. So the two things kind of came together very um, acutely, it was um, it was it was shocking actually hearing some of the stories being being relayed and understanding the impact that it had had on 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 women. So um, 
you know, again, I think you're you're faced with a choice. You 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 either sort of accept the status quo or you say no, not here and not on my watch. So we worked, we actually worked with the Human Rights Commission in Victoria um, on a um, on a campaign called Know the Line, which was very controversial when we rolled it out at the Arts Centre because it's a very um, visible campaign. So there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, we had poster, you know, huge posters in lifts about knowing knowing the line and where the line is and where how not to step over it. And we had those in lifts that were used by um uh, by members of the public as well as um, visiting artists and, and companies and so on and so forth. And and people found it very confronting and there were some complaints that it was too confronting. And and we didn't blink, actually. We, my view was I'm glad it's confronting because this is an issue that needs to be confronted. Um, we also... Um, you know, became, I think once you see some, once you sort of hear some of those personal stories and see the impact that they've had, you you actually can't unsee it. And so it made, um, it certainly made me and um, my, my senior team much more aware of this as an issue in the workplace. And I think, you know, perhaps as a, um, as an industry, there has been a level of tolerance of it in in the past historically, um, and and I think we now have a responsibility to zero tolerance. So we will, um, and this goes for bullying as well as sexual harassment, actually. And um, you know, we've had examples where there has been inappropriate, over really overbearing um, behaviour from very senior people in visiting organisations and we'll just tackle it head on. I, I don't care who it is. It's not here, not in this workplace. And and actually when you've done that, it's terrifying, like it's utterly terrifying to do it. But um, it's incredibly empowering because you know that um, in doing that, you are making a, you're taking a very significant position about I don't care who you are, it's not happening here. Um, and, and and your crew see that and your team see that and that then empowers them to speak out about what they see. So, you know, I think I think the industry is 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 definitely changed by me too. And I, I'd be surprised if you find anyone who thinks it's not. But I think the next step is well, you know, how do you tackle that head on and um and make sure that for people who are coming into the industry now, they never have to experience that. They never have to personally experience it and they never have to witness it. And that's what we're, you know, that's what we're trying to create. And there's there's lots of advice, um, you know, and this is why we like to partner with um with professionals in 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 their field and this has been no different there's you know there's lots of advice about setting up um you know confidential anonymous reporting um mechanisms so that if people don't feel safe um reporting something in their immediate context they've got a pathway that they can go to and that comes you know it comes straight to me and you know it's it's a very um there's lots of mechanisms you can use to really um 
firstly demonstrate you mean it, which I think for your team and for people who come and work at your your venues, that's incredibly important that we are, we are serious about this. But then to provide the right support so that people can tackle it. And we bake all of those expectations now into our venue hire agreements. Um, they're just part of how we do business. And that's very different um, now. And I think the Me Too movement has had a, a big part to play in, in just getting it out of the closet and, um, and you know, setting that expectation for, for people who are in positions of leadership to do something about it, to not just agree with it and, you know, move on, but to actually take action to address it. It's been really interesting to see how it's kind of, in you know the intersections between me too and also the kind of cancel culture and people being so much more vocal about things um you know if you have an artist that's touring that's been accused of something you know i know there was a another venue in melbourne last year that that cancelled a, a string of dates you know even though that artist might not have been convicted i mean it's quite a huge pressure on an institution as well it's not like you're going to be able to undertake police checks for everybody that performs but um that social responsibility i think was something that has really been brought to the fore by by me too and allowed people to have conversations that maybe they felt uncomfortable having before um really important yeah really really important and and overdue um okay <laughs> claire i have one more question for you um one of my favorite art center melbourne moments ever was the kylie exhibition and i know that our kylie stores her incredible stage wardrobe at art center melbourne i would love to go in there someday <laughs> just amazing um all those tiny tiny mannequins specially made for kylie it was just i think i came maybe three times i also came to the fan event of all the kylie collectors and just had the most amazing time um and i know that kylie is a art center patron so i'm wondering have you met kylie do you get to have a rosé with kylie when she comes to melbourne i have met kylie she's um a terrific, obviously a terrific artist, but a, a wonderful Melbourneian. And uh, she was uh, has been a very significant um, contributor to the Australian Performing Arts Collection, which uh, is housed and looked after by Arts Centre Melbourne. There are nearly 700,000 items of performing arts history in that, and uh, Kylie's uh, contribution has been really quite astonishing. So I will take you into the archive one day, Chelsea, when we're allowed out of lockdown um i'll show you the golden hot pants which are you know that one of the most um extraordinary items in in the collection and stored very beautifully and looked after really beautifully by the team at art center melbourne so um yeah she's she's actually the one of the patrons of the australian music vault which is uh, located in the theatres building there under the spire. And that's, that opened oh, a couple of years ago now and has been incredibly popular. It tells uh, the wonderful, many, many wonderful stories of um, artists from Australian contemporary music and Kylie is obviously, is obviously one of them. And she's a, she's a wonderful supporter and a, and a, great, a great ambassador for, um, for the collection and for the Australian Music Vault. So, yeah, she's, she's lovely and... Um, 
you know, really committed to, to, to the work that we do and, and the importance of um, some of those costumes in, in her career, which has been, you know, so, so wonderful. So, yeah, we're very, we're very lucky um, to, have, to have that, that part of our collection. And, you know, many other artists uh, have very generously donated their archives as well. So I, I don't know if you're a Nick Cave fan, but we've got a significant part of, of his collection as well, some of which is currently in a wonderful exhibition uh, over in Denmark um, called Stranger Than Kindness. And that open, it was due to open back in March and we were due to be going over to, to help open it and, and then that got bashed on the head by COVID. So we haven't actually seen that exhibition yet, but uh, yeah. And Kylie has just released a rosé, which is going to be um, stocked in in the bar at the at the art centre. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. So uh, yes, and we've still got all those wonderful images up of her in the bar, of her in you know full full flight in performance mode. But she's she's a wonderful artist and a and a proud Melbourneian. So yeah, we're lucky we're lucky to have her. All of us. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking time out to have a chat with me. So appreciated. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to chat and uh, I look forward to welcoming you back physically into Art Centre Melbourne as soon as we can. That was my conversation with Claire Spencer. I have since tried the Kylie Rosé and I can say that it definitely is pretty delicious. This podcast is not sponsored by Kylie or Kylie Wines, but hey, I'd be open to that conversation. For more info on Art Centre Melbourne, Pinnacle Foundation and the Arts Wellbeing Collective, please check out the show notes. You've been listening to The Control Podcast. This episode was produced by Chelsea Wilson, that's me, and edited by Amy Chapman with support from City of Melbourne's Quick Response COVID Recovery Grants. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation with respect paid to elders past, present and emerging. Until next time, stay kind. This is Chelsea Wilson signing off.